Hey, it's Jay, and uh, I'm outside walking my dog, but I really needed to ask you for a, a very important favor. So I am working on a big new project, something that I think can help a lot of people, including you, uh, create more resonant work by sharpening your ideas, by shipping more creative things, and by creating more passionate fans for your business, for your career, whatever you're trying to accomplish. And so to do something like this, I really want to learn more about you and learn from you. So I've created a very short survey. It'll take you five minutes to fill it out. And if you do, you really will transform the project I'm building for people like you. So if you go to your show notes in your podcast player right now, you'll see a link to the survey, or you can visit the site jayacunzo.com slash survey to fill it out. Again, it'll take like five minutes and it'll have this huge impact on a project that I'm trying to build uh, based on the themes and the ideas in this show and in all of my work. So thank you so much for the support, jayaconzo.com slash survey, or check the link for your show notes. It'll take five whole minutes. Uh, okay, my dog right now has seen a squirrel, so I, I gotta go. This episode is sponsored by Riverside, the easiest way to record audio and video in studio quality, all from your browser. Here's a quick horror story that happened to me literally last week. So I am now creating a documentary series with a client and because it's a video show, we're using Riverside because you can record audio and video remotely when you interview someone and it'll record really high quality versions of both. But right in the middle of an interview from a really important subject that we finally booked, all of a sudden they disappeared from view. But then Riverside showed me a little bit of copy right where that video once was. And it said this person's video is no longer being shown because their internet connection is too weak. And then here was the saving line. Their video is still being recorded. Whew. Okay. Cold sweats were over. But that is the kind of thoughtfulness that goes into Riverside. Their team is so wonderful at understanding the pain points of recording audio and video shows remotely, and they've baked into the product, right down to the tiniest bit of copy, exactly what you need in features and what you need to know in information to feel like you're running a professional-grade studio in the cloud. So thank you so much to whatever copywriter and product designer was in charge of that little piece, and thank you to Riverside for not only creating a great product, but for sponsoring this show. You can learn more at riverside.fm. Hey, I'm Jay, and you, you aren't that kind of person. I'm sure of it. You aren't the kind of person to make excuses for why you can't be more creative. And of course, you'd never, never use the big three excuses. No way. You know the big three, right? The biggest, baddest excuses why we in the working world trying to build our brands, build our audiences, leave our legacies, why we don't ship more creative things. We'll get to the big three excuses in just a moment. But first, I want to commend you for not being that kind of person. Because I know you never use excuses. And neither do I. Nope. But some people, you know, some people do. Not you, but some people. And when they do, Instead of just telling them, hey, your thinking is wrong, or you're missing the point, or there's hope for you yet, instead of all that, here's a better idea. Just point those people to this one company. It's gripping, it's novel, it's kind of hidden. It's unthinkable, exploring why work resonates and how ours can too. I'm Jay Akunzo. Among the very many excuses that you make, sorry, not you, not you, never you, you're not that kind of person. So let's start over. (laughs) Among the very many excuses some people make for not being more creative in their work, 
the big three have to be these. Number one, my boss. Number two, my resources. Number three, my company or my industry is boring. I used to think that to help people overcome these issues, I had to provide all kinds of clever psychological heuristics and methods for persuading people and convincing them to see the world the way you and I see it. I tried that for years and I got pretty good at it. To understand what I mean, just Google Jay Akunzo and the words, the green smoothie problem. You're welcome, internet. Anyway, I used to think that we needed all kinds of clever sounding ideas, but now I realize we need something simpler, yet often elusive. We need a better story. The story we tell ourselves, the story we tell others, the story of why our ideas should exist, not what our ideas are but why our ideas should exist. And that is what we should communicate. And then of course, we need to explain why we're the ones to execute on those ideas. But if you need an actual recorded story to convince somebody to make this shift, how about the story of the company we're learning about today? This company has managed to overcome all three of the big three excuses blocking creativity. Taken in reverse order, they've overcome excuse number three. They occupy an allegedly boring space. They sell software that hooks up to your company's billing system. Yay. A green field of creative possibilities? Maybe for some, but for a lot of creative people, it's more like a dusty dirt road heading to one place. A nap. I mean, I'm bored just writing this script. Sure, it's useful. Their tools are very useful, but inspiring big new creative ideas? Nah. So this company's niche is allegedly boring, but they've overcome that. They've also overcome excuse number two, resources. This company's creative team is shockingly small compared to their output. They create dozens of highly produced, glossy looking projects, including a network of original series, shows in audio and video form. And these projects attract tens of thousands of passionate fans from all over the globe every month. And this company does it all with like six people and a couple of freelancers. Allegedly boring, resource constrained, it doesn't matter. They've overcome both of those things. And then, of course, there's the number one most common excuse for why we don't ship more creative work or really why some people, not you, never you, why some people don't ship creative work, the boss. And so I figured, well, let's talk to him. It's my former colleague from our days at Google and now the founder and CEO of this company called ProfitWell. His name is Patrick Campbell. You and I met as colleagues at Google, and you're now running a bootstrap startup, which in many ways can feel like the opposite end of the spectrum from how Google operates. So was there anything that you took with you from your time at Google that informs how you lead a team and support more creative work from ProfitWell? I think what Google does really, really brilliantly, and and I would argue, you know, certain large companies do this as well, is they have kind of this 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 managed chaos uh and and what i mean by that is it's 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 almost impossible to have pure perfect alignment from the top all the way to the bottom because 
you just have when we were there, you know, 30,000 people and now hundreds of thousands of people, I believe at this point. And so you're running into a situation where how do you kind of manage that? And so it's, it's very much like setting very top goals that are kind of influenced by the bottom and then allowing the rest of the organization to kind of figure out how they fit within those goals. And, and sometimes it is very top down. Somehow everyone's kind of moving not in lockstep in the same direction, but generally in the same direction. And that works out really well. And it's just something that should be really admired in organizational design, because if you try to to put too many kind of guardrails, even on content, I would argue, and like our media team, what ends up happening is people either, you know, great people get frustrated by it, or, you know, people who, you know, even aren't necessarily great, they just, you know, just don't scale because all of a sudden you have to be so involved. The company that Patrick now leads, ProfitWell, sells software for other subscription companies, both B2B SaaS, software as a service, and D2C, direct to consumer. Customers like Canva, Masterclass, Zenefits, Autodesk, Notion, Charity Water, and even the shoe brand Asics all use ProfitWell's tools to get better data on where revenue is being gained or lost and what to do about it. Again, this could sound like some kind of dusty dirt road leading straight to Snoozeville. It's a very technical product and could be considered a dry category leading to some dry marketing. But what ProfitWell does is anything but dry. Consider ProfitWell Roadshow. What is ProfitWell Roadshow? Yeah, so that's... (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Essentially, what's happening is I'm driving in a camper van that's wrapped and you know has a lot of content. And and basically, in 2022, we're going to be getting out there and meeting a ton of people. The shortest version of the story is um, we know that in-person works really, really well for us. Uh, We've historically seen uh, things like dinners, uh, events, conferences, meetups, these types of things work really, really well for our business. And the idea, all of a sudden COVID hit, obviously. And so that kind of buttoned that up. And then as COVID kind of became more and more endemic or is becoming more endemic, we started getting out there a little bit more. But the roadshow was basically how can we do a hundred dinners or a hundred meetups or a hundred meals or just some things uh, throughout the course of a year. And so there was a lot of thought put into what does that look like? A CEO in a combination camper van and roving podcast studio. Does that make sense? It does if you know ProfitWell. They're a backend and again, allegedly boring type of service, but they operate much more like an exciting, creative media company. They've piloted 11 different original series, including a few flagship programs that persist, like Pricing Page Teardown, a video show where two co-hosts, including Patrick, review the pricing strategies of big brands. There's also Protect the Hustle, an interview series. Here are some clips from that show's trailer. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those who are in the trenches actually doing the work. The word hustle dates back to the 1680s from the Dutch word huslen, which means to shake or to toss. Hustle was initiative and not accepting your circumstances and doing everything in your power to change. Hip hop embraced this throughout the 90s and the aughts because a lot of circumstances in black communities need to be shaken up to push out of poverty by any means necessary. Startups embraced this concept of hustle because it meant shoe leather and elbow grease, getting there before anyone else did and going that extra mile to get the deal done. But then hustle changed. 
Startups started latching onto this word as the gratuitous image of crushing it and tweeting out unnecessary vocalizations of superficial feelings of accomplishment. Hustle lost its edge. The context changed completely and hustle became negative because we associated it with not great things and not great people. But the thing is though, hustle still means hustle. Hustle is a beacon to changing your own personal circumstances and destroying the demons that haunt you and try to prevent you from doing that one extra call, that one extra rep, or whatever it takes. Those who protect the hustle define hustle, and that's what we're all about at ProfitWell, keeping that velocity to rage against the dying of things that we find important. And to do our part to the greater hustle community, we're bringing you season two of Protect the Hustle. Stories in the trenches from the people doing the actual work and protecting everything that Hustle stands for. These original series, series that, unlike most branded shows, seem to each have a distinct purpose, like they were thoughtfully created. How about that? These shows represented an impressive opening of a new chapter in how ProfitWell now builds its brand. But with that rise in creative ambition, a certain type of line comes into view, a line that people with taste and good intentions often dance towards, but never want to cross. The line is this, at what point does something quirky or unique or cool start to feel like a hollow, stunt-like grab for attention, something unwelcome that's transparently begging to be liked? Does ProfitWell do that stuff? It's tough to say. How close are they to the line, you be the judge? but they certainly march towards the line a lot more confidently than some of us do. In addition to their shows, they'll also do things like create branded hot sauces to distribute or trading cards that feature executives from other brands that you can collect to build your dream team. I asked Patrick, how does this stuff help ProfitWell's cause? And how does he think about dancing towards that line? It's first understanding we're going to screw this up at some point. We're going to do something that's too cringy. We're going to do something that's too far. I don't think it'll be so far that it's not fixable. Um, like, I don't think we're going to do something that's like, you know, that'll get us canceled or anything like that. I think it's knowing that we're going to screw this up and that's okay. We do this with our marketing, right? Sometimes we get crap because some of our subject lines are a little, little too clickbaity on Twitter, but it's like, if I don't test that line, how am I going to know where it is, right? How am I going to know what works? And, you know, you have people who are very like, you know, self-righteous about some of these types of things where it's like, you know, you need all this control, right? And it needs to be like fit within these guidelines. And it's like, well, guidelines are, are made to be broken and good luck having a great creator or great media person on your team when you're just so restrictive with the guidelines. Because a lot of this stuff is, is serving not only the purposes of getting awareness and growth, but it's also serving the purposes of keeping our media team happy. Because they're like, oh, another show on pricing, another ebook on this. Like that's exhausting to them. But it's like, oh my gosh, I get to create this sizzle reel about how hot sauce and I get to experiment with an anteater lens and I get to do this cool new editing trick. Like that's the type of stuff that keeps people going. Right. So I think it's like creating a space where people can fail and, and honestly dare to fail gloriously. That's a big phrase that, that I hold true to. And when you dare to fail gloriously, you're going to screw up, which is fine. And then I think the other part is just, we've built that trust to the point where the team might not be able to exactly explain why something's good or bad or why we should do something or not do it, but the team can certainly trust each other. So for example, and I'm, I'm, I, I definitely had a, uh, 
had a moment where I was like, you know, screw you guys, because <laughs> I was like, this churn 100,000 video is going to work. Ah, uh, yes, the churn 100,000 video. In late 2021, Patrick sat down at his computer, switched on his camera, adjusted his mic, and then proceeded to say the word churn a hundred thousand times. Churn, 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 churn. It took him nine hours, three minutes, and twenty-six seconds. Churn, 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 churn. Turn, 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 the point turn, was to illustrate turn, just how much ProfitWell's products can save companies from customer churn. So while Patrick was busy replacing all the words of famous songs with the word churn, 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 While that was happening and all the other churns across nine hours, ProfitWell says they recovered just under $6 million in lifetime customer value for their customers. In other words, ProfitWell's customers' customers who showed signs that they might stop paying ProfitWell's customers would then get flagged to ProfitWell's customers who could then take steps to keep their customers. And if you think that's me saying customer a lot, I only said it eight times. Only 99,992 to go. It's going to work. I know it's going to work. It's not too cringy. Some people will find it cringy, but it's not too cringy. And every no one wanted to do it. And I was like, it's I'm the only one like suffering for it. So let's just let's just set it up and let's do it. Um, and it was one of the most successful awareness, you know, things we've ever done. And, and I'm not saying that because I'm like, oh, I'm right, you guys were wrong, but it's more like they trusted me enough to know, well. Patrick sees something. If it fails, it's fine. But like he sees something and we can minimize the amount of work it's going to take. So like, let's do it. Right. And there's similar stuff. You know, we recently had a product video that, um, our, our head of the team, Dan, I just was like, Oh, this isn't enough. We should iterate it more. And he was just like, listen, man, this is a, this is a two day project. I think this is actually great. A third day is not going to make it that much better. Another week isn't going to make it that much better. Like let's ship it. Right. And you know, we went back and forth and I was like, all right, man, yeah, it's your, it's your, your call you have a team that starts developing taste. And I think that's really hard because it's not measurable, but taste in the sense of where are those lines? Where 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 do they exist? And you start developing, I, I don't remember the the exact case or whatever, but you know, the Supreme Court had a case where they were like, we don't know how to define porn, but you know it when you see it. And I think that's that's a that's a taste measure of like, we don't know when something's gonna be over the line. We can't define it, but we're pretty sure we're we're gonna know when we see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we go over listen, we'll recover, we'll work on something else and, and we'll move on, which I think is, is the best thing. If you're not from the world of marketing or content marketing, or even more specifically, B2B content marketing, I'll enlighten you. For years, the playbook was the same across the board. Whatever topics you want to be associated with, whatever things you think your audience is searching for on Google, publish articles about that. It kind of lends itself to being commodity marketers because you don't really have a point of view or editorial mission or voice. It's just about covering the right topics. And then that slowly expanded to include more still ultimately topics driven projects, podcasts and videos. I'm sure you know the type like with podcasts about work, you could remove the real name and replace it with the same exact title across almost every show that every B2B brand is publishing today. Talking topics with experts. 
everyone is trying to compete with their competitors based on what they talk about. But that's wildly commodified. What you talk about is not unique to you. But what about how you talk about it? What you talk about and how you talk about it combine to give your audience a reason why they'd care. The combination of the what and the how, in other words, the topics and the hook, the angle, the conceit, that creates your premise, whether you're running a blog, a newsletter, or a show. And early on, ProfitWell very much embraced the drier, more topics-driven, personality-less content. At first, Patrick and then his team would write long-form articles teaching you how to price your products and other things relating to capturing more revenue, and they'd publish ebooks as well. But lately, they feel far less like didactic teachers who blend in, and far more like creators of culture, like entertainers and educators at the very same time. And they don't blend in. They stand way out. One way they create culture are these projects they call drops. For example, these playing cards where we minted playing cards. This was right before NFT started popping off. Uh, We minted playing cards of notable people in our space. And what was brilliant about that it's all of a sudden you've baked in some social spread just based on ego of people wanting to see who's on the card, people who are on the cards retweeting it, these types of things, right? We did hot sauces. And, and the beauty of the hot sauce wasn't necessarily like, oh my gosh, why are they doing hot sauce? WTF, which is you know a great reaction. Like we actually sourced really good hot sauce, but it was also like, oh, you know, there's this pepper challenge I'm going to do based on social shares where, you know, for a certain number of social shares, I'll eat, you know, increasingly hot peppers, right? And I hate spicy food. And again, it's it's all this, it, it, it either has this like, oh, that's cool. I want that. Or I, I want to get in on that type of vibe and has some social spread, or it has this like WTF moment of like, what is going on? Like the churn video. <laughs> But in either way, it like gets spread because if it's WTF, people are like, can you believe what the hell's happening? And, and maybe they're hating a little bit, but it's all in good fun, right? And the production quality is all good. Or they're like, oh, this is really cool. I want to get that thing or I want to like get myself a pack of those playing cards mm. or whatever it ends up being. Depending on your perspective, that sounds fun or it sounds kind of cringeworthy. You decide. If nothing else, at ProfitWell, the decision to do these things was pretty strategic. So Drops started because we started with content that is very hedged in terms of revenue. We have a show about pricing pages. We help with pricing. We have a show about churn and retention. Our software helps with churn and retention, right? Then we started climbing the funnel, I guess is, is a good way to put it. And I know, I don't know, I don't know if we're using the funnel anymore, but just everyone knows the funnel. So I'm going to refer to it where we would consider these shows are very kind of middle of the funnel, bottom of the top of the funnel type content. And I think the thing that a lot of marketers don't realize and for us, it was really hard to internalize is that the hardest thing is getting someone to understand who you are, or just to know that you exist. And I think what ends up happening is, is a lot of our content, because it's good and we've been doing it for a while, people know we exist because they associate us with certain words, pricing, retention, SaaS, these types of things, right? But we're not getting the pops out of, you know, kind of audience where it's it's basically this, this very top of the funnel, tippy top of the funnel content that's just for pure awareness, right? 
And that content looks different because someone's not necessarily seeking it out. They're, they're looking for something that's, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, relatively cool or relatively, can you believe that they just did this, right? And so this is where drops started coming into play. And I don't know if it's quite, we're trying to like shape the culture of, of our, our world. I think it's more of like, we're just trying to bring culture to our world. Because I think if you think about the traditional software company, it's boring. It's really boring. And then the ones who try to not be boring, they it's just, for lack of a better example, it's just like white guys trying to do a rap YouTube video. And it's just like not interesting, right? And cringy, right? And I think Ham- that- Yeah, yeah, definitely. Ham-fisted. Let's go with the old school. Ham-fisted. ham-fisted. There we go. Yeah. But it's, it's just one of those things. And I'm not judging. It's just the space isn't like made for that, right? And so- what we're basically doing is the old adage of, you know, people buy from people and we want to add some level of cool or some level of like they're out there or some level of what that is. So we kind of started committing to, we need to do one to two pure awareness pieces of content or things per quarter. Right. And some of these are, you know, if we were, if we did drops, you know, drops is a very like e-commerce-y or very, um, you know, a lot of artists will do drops, um, musical artists, these types of things. So what, what would they do if they were a software company? Right. So that's, that's kind of the forcing function. And then other, other kind of, you know, pieces in this is what would Mr. Beast do, um, if, you know, he was running software or marketing at a software company. Right. So those are kind of the forcing functions and, and we do not measure anything related to attribution with these campaigns. We measure, you know, impressions. We do measure those types of things, but we are not worried about, does it bring back to revenue? Because we know it's going to, but we also know it's, 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 you know, we're going to measure as much as we can, but we're, we're not going to like worry about, we can't do that because we can't measure it. In addition to Patrick Campbell, the company's CEO and co-founder, I also talked to Dan Callahan. Dan is the head of ProfitWell's Recur Studios, the name of their creative team in charge of their 11 original podcast and video series, their drops, events, and more. And I asked him, what's it like doing this media and creative focused job in a way that feels like a culture magazine, but for a very specific niche and for a software company at that? There is nothing like it that informs it directly. It's It's been a lot of learning as we go because there is not a lot of precedent for it inside of a tech company. And I feel like the, the biggest things I've learned is that that doesn't matter that much. The fact that we are a B2B company and making B2B marketing and like it's it's expected, you know, in general, it's a more boring, you know, industry in terms of marketing. Uh, and you'd expect these art persona, I mean, maybe stereotypically like is is super businessy and, you know, executives I and mean, that's that is who our personas are, but they still watch content in their free time. They still enjoy content. And I think they enjoy our content because it's a good mix of enjoyable to watch, entertaining, and also provides them value that helps them be better at their jobs or, you know, grow their company in a certain way or just learn learn something new that was valuable. Just because it's it, we're making B2B marketing shows, uh, it, it's still content and we still need to approach it as if it's, as if it's content. Um, and because people... People enjoy watching things and we just need to capitalize on that. How are you thinking about this thing being consistently good or what happens after the pilot once you're greenlit? 
Uh, for us, after after that, it's really about identifying what the rest of the season looks like. Um, and for you know a lot of our shows, it's there's not uh, you know like an actual like narrative arc that that you know carries throughout the the series. Um, you know, for something like Pricing Page Teardown, it's you know each episode is is standalone um, in a lot of ways. But you know, we we take a lot of care into placing you know which episodes happen when you know, and, and making sure not to have too many. You know, we wouldn't want two episodes in the same vertical like right after each other you know oh, really- act, do you have can you actually talk us through this i don't think people think that critically about what episodes go where can you walk us through an example of how you did that so, so for a show like pricing based Teardown, we're looking at a specific brand a lot of times the companies we're gonna make episodes about it's it's kind of like a really really complex and really good abm strategy um because oftentimes they are prospects the companies we do episodes on so a lot of times that kind of first pass of what episodes we should do comes from kind of pulling you know pulling from the sales team and then from there it's like you know we as creatives and the media team kind of decide you know what okay what could actually be interesting in terms of like content and then we can kind of pick which should become episodes and kind of have that list and then from there yeah it's really we just want to make sure that there's a flow to the season that is just as interesting week over week. Like if we just try to put put ourselves in the shoes of an audience member who actually, you know, is coming back every week, and we want to make sure we keep them interested with like one episode that's like really B two B, you know, like a super techie B two B product. You know, that's that's you know, there's a lot of really good insights in that episode, and it's it's more serious. And follow that up with like an episode breaking down like farmers only and, and Tinder or something. You know, like where it's like there's some comedic insights as well in there. Yeah, just really expanding that to the entire season and, and just thinking about episode to episode how things are flowing, and then like also stepping back and looking at the full season and make sure we have you know a good makeup of B two B consumer subscriptions and um. Just make sure there's a good kind of balance across the full season. Here's Patrick again. We're evolving out of this, doing the content that we know will have a very high likelihood of working to evolving into what is the content that gets us an emotional resonance with our users or our prospects at such a high level. And we have a couple projects in the works that I think are, are, are going to help with that, but that's going to take iteration and time. To bring it to your team now, and specifically some of the creative projects and the shows that you're doing on the marketing side, you and I have had previous conversations where we talk about you know how far is too far with production? You know, mm-hmm. Is that 2% extra worth it? And I think sometimes for the project's sake, you say yes, but other times you might talk about the team. Well, actually, they need to go that 2% extra or that extra mile to feel rewarded, and that'll affect their other projects, et cetera. So there's sort of this like constant give and take of... You know, sure. there's no getting the A plus or correct answer on this stuff. Eventually, you have to ship it. And so the go, no go decision can be a source of uh, tension. How do you manage mm. that tension with the creatives that you work with? I think it goes in cycles or stages. I think in the first stage, it's just a trust building exercise and an alignment exercise. So I was running the team brought on a couple of folks, you know, one person at first. And all of a sudden what ends up happening with with that cycle is really developing the vision together. And that's what's really hard, right? Because you still have to ship stuff, but then you're also kind of building this foundation to do more stuff for lack of a better phrase. 
And then when you start to trust, you get the shorthand, right? You know, you guys can, you know, give feedback certain ways. You can understand, you know, what, what someone's good at, what they're not so good at, what their blinders are, those types of things, which I think is, is really, really important. And then you start adding different people to the team, but those people that you've kind of aligned or built that trust with, whether they're leading a part of the team or they're just, you know, kind of cranking on things um, individually, you start to have, you know, that shorthand that really helps. I think the the next iteration is very much what is the thesis of the type of content you want to create? And what that means to us is, you know, not just like what type of shows or what type of content and who it's targeted towards, those types of things, but it's very much what is the example or what is a striation of something that's not necessarily needs to be hundred percent or an A plus, as you said, versus something that needs to be an A versus something that needs to be an A plus, right? So this is one of the biggest unlocks that we had where we we thought of and we kind of split things into spread shows and then upscale shows. That's kind of what we call it internally. And spread shows uh, they should be, you know, outsourced to contractors for post-production as much as humanly possible. The media team should not work on them um, except for like the treatment or the initial, like what is the show. Um, but they, it shouldn't be like a day-to-day thing they're working on or except for managing maybe an outsourced contractor. Um, and, and basically like those shows are made for spread or made for like volume um, cheaply, if that makes sense. And then upscale shows, we will spend the extra week um, iterating. We'll spend the extra days iterating. And the reason we structure those things is because what was happening is we would have this trust and alignment from kind of stage one but in this stage two we didn't really have that that split and so we kind of averaged out where like the shows were they're good but they weren't great and then we were spending too much time on things that didn't need to be great just to jump in really quick here we're talking about how patrick and his team evolved over time Stage one would be one other person or a very small team along with Patrick setting the vision of what they were going to create. Stage two would be much more focused on the project level than the vision level. They started to execute the vision and that execution created some helpful shorthand ways of interacting with each other with terminology and process and more intimate knowledge of how every individual works and what each person does uniquely well. And part of that connection in stage two was focusing the more emotional labor and bespoke creativity on only the most important or unique or unproven projects and putting better process to the things that were proven so you can operationalize them. And then I think we're kind of in this third stage and I'm, I'm coming up with this framework, you know, as I'm, as I'm speaking, but I think this, this third stage, which got really interesting because now it's about me having, let's say a veto power or feedback power but trying to use it as sparingly as possible because I want the team specifically, and they're very capable and better than me and a lot of these things to kind of take things on and getting their own voice and getting their own kind of style that fits into kind of the overarching style of the team. And so I set up like guardrails in terms of like, what are the big, you know, goals? What is kind of the things we absolutely need, like product launches or for content or these types of things. And then they kind of go to work and, I think that the shorthand we've gotten to in this stage three is that there's certain things that there should be multiple feedback cycles, let's say three feedback cycles. And then there's certain things that we're okay with 10 feedback cycles and kind of calibrating around that with having this, you know, overarching kind of strategy really, really helps things to kind of make sure that creatives don't get too burnt out on critiques, but also making sure that we're producing things at, at a really, really nice clip. And hell, man, that's genius. Thanks, man. <laughs> like, I yeah. have not heard anyone describe the production process 
across a collection of productions like that. So I talked to the head of content at 360 Learning, very successful LMS company. They did a docu-series. They've done a second season and then a spin-off show. So three total series uh, or seasons documenting what their own employees go through as they onboard, as they take new jobs or even start at the company because they're selling software that helps people train and learn and onboard. Uh, and it was a runaway success, especially the first series called Onboarding Joey. So I talked to Joey and their content approximates their internal reality. In other words, it's very docu-style in such a way that their audience feels very seen in terms of what the audience is mm -hmm. going through. And I would say that their superpower, or if you want to say the, the story of their content's success, is that it was their willingness to put the vulnerable, uncomfortable, even combative or unspoken moments on camera in a way no competitor or really brand does. Yeah. You've done way more content than they have at this point. If you had to put your finger on it, what's your team's superpower that you'd put up against anyone else or the the story of your content success? I think we have the most efficient team in the business. I think our superpower is the quality we're able to produce, which I don't think is the highest in the industry, but is in the upper quartile. But we have the lowest quartile, if not the lowest 1% in terms of, in terms of the, the space, in terms of costs. I think our superpower is that efficiency. I think from a content perspective, I think our superpower is around just embodying trust probably better than most in content because we have the combination of data, being able to speak through the data and giving actionable takeaways. I, I think we do that better than most, if not better than anyone. So I think those are the two really like one forward facing, one kind of internal facing yeah. things that we do very well. So to sum up the efficiency thing, because I first I hear efficiency, I think, oh, the team is incredibly burnt out. Uh, <laughs> like, got to do more with less people. Um, is that yeah. a correct assumption? There, there are moments where the team was very burnt out um, and it kind of go ebbs and flows, but I, I don't think that's related to the efficiency. I think that we use contractors, we use virtual assistants, we use Zapier, we use automation. We use all of these things to a point that it is a it is an actual superpower within our business because when we look at, hey, let's take a risk with this show or let's take a risk with this concept, we don't have to like overthink it because we're like, worst case scenario, like it's not the money, it's just it's not even the time. It's just like one of those things that we can take. So right, right. yeah, I think that I, I it's not like we're squeezing creatives, right? I think that's where efficiency comes into play. I think sure. it's more like you know, we probably could always do better at that, like all, you know, t teams on this level. But I think that people are shocked by how much we're able to, or how much we get done with how small our team is and how small the budget actually is. I think trust is an efficiency weapon. I think if you have trust, you move faster with greater clarity. And it's the lack of trust that causes people to slow way, way, way down and focus on the wrong things or debate things that don't need to be debated. Or I have my little fiefdom, you have yours. Or we, I need to touch all the parts and pieces of mine. I can't let you do any of the things that look like mine because it's my kingdom. And so I think you keep saying trust and I actually, I relate that back to efficiency. As you work with a creative team as a CEO, do you have any heuristics to guide you? You know, uh, are, is, are you saying, okay, we're going to do two projects for the audience, one for us? You know, two things because we're pretty certain it'll work for them and one thing that we have no idea if it'll work, but it sounds fun. Uh, or so do you have something like that or do you have any kind of playbook 
that replaces the you know classic blog post and ebook B2B playbook? How, how do you try to give form to all this work? We've developed this over time, and I don't know if it's exactly in a good place, but it's it's to the point that we're pretty confident we're iterating on the, or we're doing some of the final iterations um, for this team size and then beyond. What we kind of found is if teams are just working on shows, all of a sudden what ends up happening is they burn out on shows just like they would burn out on ebooks or that type of content, right? Because it, it gets a little like, yes, the show might change and maybe you can extend things with, um, you know, doing like a really fun show that is very awareness focused, but we probably wouldn't take that. We'd take that risk now, but we wouldn't have taken the risk earlier because you're like, well, I don't know. Is this going to bring us enough audience? Blah, 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 blah. Right. So that's something where it's really hard. And then the short form stuff like is great, but you can't just have short form all the time because you need some beefier stuff to build audience. So the way we've started running things is like, we'll have one quarter or so. Um, and I say, or so loosely, because sometimes it blends one quarter or so that's just strictly shows. Um, and then we, and then it's like, it's either the existing shows we're already doing that are going to get renewed, if you will. Um, and, uh, a new show or two, depending on what it is. And it might be, a. It could be a, a upscale show. It could be a scale show. So the, the level of work that goes into it is is kind of determined based on you know kind of the the vision of the marketing. And then the next quarter is a short form quarter. That's when it's like a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of latitude because with ads and things like that or short form content, you can be super super just out there in terms of like, what are we going to do? How are we going to structure things, et cetera? Because the risk is lower. It's not like we're spending all these resources on 13 different episodes. It's like we're doing a 30 second spot of something. And obviously it doesn't have to be 30 seconds, but just to give you some, some anchoring there and cool, we're going to use this new drone. We're going to use this new car thing. We're going to do this type of thing. And all of a sudden this like episodic back and forth gives a lot of balance. Um, during the last year, it's been a little bit harder because um, it's just one of those things where we're starting to break the kind of quarterly cycle because I think that that limits you in a lot of different ways. Um, not only because things, you know, kind of evolve or expand to fit that timeline when really they should be, should be smaller. So right now what Dan and I have um, Dan leads this team and, and I'm trying to get myself out of this team. And so this is very top of mind. Dan is basically doing like, I'm, I'm helping with like, Hey, these are the big themes. And these are the things I absolutely need by like these dates, you know, for product launches or whatever it is, you fill out everything else. And then you and I are going to check in each month. So we literally, we check in each month and I go, what are the things that are going to get done this month? And like when roughly basically the next month, you know, we, we kind of have the same conversation and so on and so forth. And that helps like be a conduit to the rest of the marketing and growth team, as well as the rest of the company. And then, you know, we can kind of go from there and, and kind of plan in a much more nimble fashion than, you know, oh my gosh, we have this yearly plan. It falls apart by January right. one and, you know, so on and so forth. I, this kind of marries both questions where we're talking about the playbook and the process. And we also, before that, we're talking about some of the awareness content and, you know, t tipping too far into the kitsch, uh, you know, cat videos as marketing or whatever. Do yeah. you have a stated editorial mission that kind of binds this all together that when things get chaotic, you can reset to, or you can onboard people and give them greater clarity. Is there sort of that anchor point thematically or emotionally on behalf of the mm -hmm. audience that keeps you centered? We have we have a doc that kind of gets into the profitable voice, 
were a combination of Neil deGrasse Tyson and Mark Benioff, right? Like that type of thing. Problem is they don't know who Mark Benioff is. So they go watch a Mark Benioff video. They watch Neil deGrasse Tyson. They're like, oh, this is it. Like things like, you know, cool, but scientific, right? So we give these guidances, but we, we try to keep it at that level. But what we've kind of found is that th- these are very, um, very dangerous documents, in my opinion. And the reason is, is because I don't want to get in a creative person's way with how they deploy their understanding of voice without going through a couple of cycles of feedback as well as like alignment. And we've made this mistake. We've made this mistake where we get a little too overbearing and we're now at this point where it's like hire great people, give them is as, as, as little of like bumpers as you can, but still give them some bumpers. And then that first week, have them do a project, like have them do a, a short form ad, have them jump in, then give them a two week project. And then basically by that point, we've had enough alignment conversations that they can go and bring their creativity where they need to, but then they have a good, a better sense of voice, a better sense of look, feel, etc. I don't want to be like, do this, don't do that. Like, I, I don't want to be so overly bearing that all, all of a sudden what ends up happening is they don't take risks. They don't push us forward. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed creating it. This episode was written and edited by me with production support from Alana Nevins. If you had any thoughts or questions on the episode, the show, or my work overall, email me. I'm jay at unthinkablemedia.com. And I'm also at Jay Akunzo on Twitter. I really love hearing from you, not just about the show, but about anything I do. I write, give speeches, and create shows for brands who care about resonating more deeply with their audience. One thing you can do both to support my work and also to get more stories and ideas and frameworks, some of which never appear on the show, is to subscribe to my free weekly newsletter. It's called Playing Favorites, where every Friday you'll get one new idea for creating work that resonates to help grow your business and leave your legacy. On the email, you'll be in good company with subscribers from brands like the New York Times, the BBC, Adobe, Salesforce, Red Bull, and more, plus plenty of entrepreneurs, marketers, freelancers, and independent creators, all of whom get my weekly email. Visit jayaconzo.com to subscribe or check your show notes for a link. I'm back next week with a brand new episode of the show. Until then, keep making what matters. Bye-bye. Thanks again to our sponsor, Riverside, the easiest way to record audio and video in studio-grade quality right from your browser. 
Riverside is simple enough to be used by novices and independent creators and powerful enough to be used by the likes of Spotify, Microsoft, Verizon, Fox Sports, Marvel, and iHeartMedia, and plenty more. Their tools are really leading the way for how you can create high-quality, creative work, but remotely through the browser in this work-from-home age. They also have this awesome feature called Clips, where you can choose a layout for your videos and actually clip them right from their software to distribute on social media. So you can lay it out for Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever you're posting. I use Riverside for this show and all my client shows, and I think you'd enjoy it if you explore it yourself. Plans start at just $7.50 a month. That's $7.50 per month. But you can record 60 minutes completely for free to try it out. Visit riverside.fm to learn more.